Let's pray together, shall we? Our Father, we offer this time to you this morning, and um, I just pray that we would have a great sense of your presence here. And I recognize, you know, we've all come from different places this week, different experiences, some good, some bad. Um, I recognize, Lord, there are those uh, in our community um, who are hurting today for whatever reason. Some who are sick, some are in a hospital, some have experienced great loss this week. But I pray that no matter what we've experienced, the joy, the trials, um, whatever, whatever we've experienced, we come here this morning with a desire to meet with you in, in a real, tangible way. And so I pray that you would pour your spirit out on this place and on your people. And I pray, God, that you would, you would enable us to, to grasp hold of some of the, uh, the challenges of, of life and understanding those things today. I, I pray, Lord, that um, you would remove any distractions that would, would take our attention away from what you want us to know and hear this morning. And so we offer this time to you. Uh, and we love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You all may be seated. I invite you to open your Bibles with me if you have them. If not, there's one around you down in the chair racks you could find. Open to Job chapter 1. Job 1. Uh, today we're beginning a, a study of this Old Testament text that, uh, as many of you might know, speaks to the issue of suffering, which is pretty important because, I mean, you know, more, nothing is more certain in life than uh, the fact that at some point or another we're all going to suffer. Now, I don't, I don't want to put a big downer on your day. It's beautiful outside, but, you know, the re, that's the reality of, uh, of life. You know, there, at times there, there's disease, there's disability, there's disaster, there's disappointment, death, all the terrible Ds, you know, that are common to the human experience. And when something bad happens to us, you know, when suffering enters our experience, uh, the natural question posed, posed by both those who believe in God and those who don't uh, is um, why? You know, why this? Why that? Why him? Why her? Why now? Why me? What's fascinating about this ancient document, dated by scholars to be somewhere around 4,000 years old, is that it addresses these whys, uh, these why questions with eloquence, uh, with philosophical integrity, emotional realism, and spiritual insight like no other piece of world literature ever produced. Uh, in fact, writer, historian, philosopher Thomas Carlyle called Job all humanity's book. The great poet laureate Alfred Lord Tennyson referred to it as the greatest poem of ancient and modern times. And uh, technically speaking, Tennyson was spot on because in terms of style, uh, Job is a, a lyrical epic poem belonging to the genre of wisdom literature. And if you've ever read it, you know that it's pretty long. It's divided into 42 chapters and includes, um, includes a cycle of, of interactions and monologues. Um, you know, there are instances when Job is thinking out loud, praying out loud. Uh, there are conversations we get to listen in on between God and Satan, between Job and his wife, Job and his friends, and then the book ends with a climactic you know, dialogue between Job and God himself. But who was Job? Uh, according to the text, he was a very wealthy man with a large family who had a reputation in his region of the world of, of being an incredibly good guy. 
Here's what we, here's what we know from verse 1. In the land of, some people say Uz, some people say Uts, I think that's closer to the Hebrew. But in the land of Uts, there lived a man whose name was Job. Uh, this man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters and owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 donkeys, and a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the people of the East. Uh, Verses 4 and 5 go on to tell us how Job's adult children liked to throw big birthday parties for each other, eating and doing a lot of drinking, and and Job was always a little afraid they might get out of hand, and so he would pray for them. He would would offer sacrifices on their, their behalf. I mean, he was a good dad. Uh, he, was a, he, was a devout, he was a devout guy. And then in verse 6, the scene switches from heaven to, or from earth to an, sort of heaven, this unseen spiritual realm where angels present themselves before God and the adversary of God, known as Satan, comes with them. And God says to Satan, where, where have you come from? And he answers, from roaming throughout the earth, going back and forth on it. And the Lord says, have you considered, literally, have you seen my servant Job? There's no one on earth like him. He's blameless and upright. He's a man who fears God and shuns evil. And Satan replies, does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You've blessed the work of his hands so his flocks and his herds are spread throughout the land. But now stretch out your hand and strike everything he has and he will surely curse you to your face. And the Lord says, very well then. Everything he has is in your power, but on the man himself, do not lay a finger. And then the adversary goes out to do his worst. Verse 13, the scene returns to earth, and one day a messenger comes to Job, and he says, "Uh, this tribe of Sabaeans attacked us out of nowhere, and they stole all your oxen and all your donkeys. They put your servants to to the sword. I'm the only one who escaped. As he was speaking, another servant comes and says, this fire fell from heaven. It was like, this, like lightning just struck your sheep and, and your servants, and, and uh, I'm the only one who survived. While he was sharing his account, another messenger shows up and says, the, the, the Chaldeans raided us out of nowhere and made off with all your camels, and they killed all the, your servants who are watching your camels, except for me, I'm the only one left. And then while he was speaking, yet another messenger arrives and says, your children Your children were partying at the home of your oldest son when a mighty wind swept in from the desert and struck the house. It collapsed, and they're all dead. I'm the only one who escaped. And at that, we're told, Job got up, and he he tore his robe, and he shaved his head, which in the ancient Near East was a way of mourning. It was a sign of mourning. And uh, we're told that he fell to the ground in worship. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. And we're also told that in all of this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. Now, although there are 41 left to go, uh, we, we don't have to venture far beyond this first chapter to gain some insight on how to handle, at least begin to handle suffering especially when it comes without warning, out of nowhere, with no apparent justifiable reason, and our minds start generating questions like, you know, why is this happening? What are we supposed to think? What are we supposed to say? What are we supposed to do? And based on what's revealed here, uh, it seems, at least to me, that in the face of suffering, we should first and foremost, above all else, avoid simplistic answers. And, And here's what I mean. 
After doing what I, I do for a number of years, I've noticed over time that people tend to react to suffering in one of two ways. Uh, some religious people ask, you know, not just why is this happening, but why is God punishing me? What have I done wrong? Uh, and there, um, there are a lot of men and women uh, in churches who consider themselves Christians who are of the opinion that if you, if you experience poverty or loss or disappointment or disability or sickness or any unexpected trial or trauma, then you must be messing up somewhere, somehow, some way. You've got to be messing up. Or you just don't have enough faith. You know, you're not praying enough. You're not giving enough. You're not serving enough. You're not going to church enough. Clearly, God's upset with you, man. He's upset uh, with you, with your failures, with your shortcomings. It's an extremely moralistic reaction. On the flip side of that, there are those who have a completely different take on suffering, a, a secular and cynical one. And they say, look, look, life is a crapshoot. It's a crapshoot, man. There's no, there's no divine purpose in any of this. Human existence is just a random, meaningless deal. And uh, if there is by chance some deity up there, out there somewhere, then uh, given the state of things on earth, at best he's incompetent, at worst he's indifferent, perhaps even impotent. You see, when it comes to the why of suffering, secularism says there's no one in charge, there's no God, there's no design, no purpose, no good, no evil, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. Nature is cruel. Love is merely a chemical reaction in your brain. Life is a biological accident. It's just a brutal thing you have to endure, so suck it up. Religious moralism says, no, 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 no. There, there is a God, and he is in control, but he's all about quid pro quo. You know, you be good enough, and you'll be taken care of. Mess up, you're going to suffer. And with all due respect to those opinions... I just think both of those are too simplistic to be correct and taken seriously. I mean, to me, it's more reasonable. It makes more sense to, when suffering happens, to just humbly recognize that there are things in this universe and in this world that we don't and we can't fully understand. We can't fully comprehend. It's, you know, life is, life is a very complicated deal. It's complicated physically, emotionally, socially, and spiritually. And you know, if you stop and think about it, that's, in some ways, that's what's being communicated here in Job chapter 1, specifically in regard to the spiritual side of things, which then impacts the physical, the emotional, and the social. And I say that because, I mean, this text provides a rather unique insight to an amazing dialogue that takes place between God and the adversary of God, Satan, in which God says, have you seen my servant Job? There's no one like him. I mean, he's, a, he's reverent, he's good, uh, he's respected, he shuns evil, to which the adversary says, really? You think that guy's so wonderful, do you? Hurt him. Let some bad things happen to him, and you'll see he's not so great. And God responds, very well then. You can do this to him, but you cannot do that. And for some of us at first, that we find that kind of disturbing. You can see it as God and Satan playing games with a person's life. And I get that reaction. I understand that reaction. But if that's all we see, if that's all we think, then we risk missing the brilliance of this dramatic narrative and the philosophical point that it's making, namely that God holds what theologians call an asymmetrical relationship to, uh, to, to suffering. What does that mean? Well, consider the interaction 
It's the adversary's idea that bad things should happen to Job, right? It's, it's not God's idea. Neither does God actively generate the suffering. Uh, and, and this, in fact, parallels sort of the overall teaching of Scripture that, that God created our world and everything in it, including us, and he created it all in innocence. In other words, the world was originally a good, safe, healthy place. No disease, no disaster, no death. The introduction of those, those painful things came as a result of, of, of humanity's rebellion against what our creator said to be good and right and true and best and helpful and healthy for us. Evil was unleashed and the fabric of our world began to unravel and essentially man pulled the string. And so on one hand, God does not actively desire or intentionally direct the suffering that comes to Job it's the adversary who envisions it, orchestrates it. However, God remains in control of the entire situation, absolutely in control, because it's not like there are two equal but opposite forces in conflict here. I mean, without question, God is in charge and, in fact, rules over uh, evil by limiting it, right? He restricts it. He says, you can do this to him, but you cannot do that. And yet, why would God allow any of it and that's a tough question. And the reason seems to me, as best as I can tell, is that through Job's suffering, ultimately God was allowing the enemy to accomplish the very opposite of what he intended to accomplish. Do you follow what I mean by that? In other words, Satan wanted to discredit Job, to expose him as a fraud, a phony, a hypocrite, prove that he worshipped God only because of the good things he had in life. Take those things away, and Job would turn and curse God. And yet that's not, that's not what happens. Instead, uh, Job becomes one of the most famous figures of human history and literature. I mean, here we are several thousand years later in the western burbs of Chicago, reading and talking about his life, his suffering, his courage, his faithfulness, his trust in God. See, God had no interest in afflicting Job, but allowed the enemy to bring pain into his life only to the degree that it actually ends up defeating evil's intention and ultimately making Job a great man, a wise man. Now, does that mean that every form of suffering that enters our human experience is a result of some diabolical attack? No, not at all. I mean, think about it. Suffering would have come to Job eventually, right? Because he was human. He lived in a broken, sinful world like us, a world that's out of sync where suffering and death are unfortunate realities. But what Job's experience demonstrates is that suffering, whenever and for whatever reason it comes, has a unique way of either pushing us away from God or drawing us closer to him. And here's the deal. Through all of it, through all of it, Job, he's never privy to that interaction between God and the adversary. He knows nothing about it. In fact, at the end of the book, God speaks to Job, but he never says, dude, listen, I know this has been really hard on you, uh, but your suffer you know, your suffering and, and how you've dealt with it, man, it's gonna change, it's gonna change and inspire people's lives for thousands and thousands and thousands of years to come, man. It's all good. God never says that to him. Again, moralism argues that the reason for suffering is you're not living right. You're not living right. You know, you need to be a better person, have more faith. 
Secularism says the reason for suffering is life's a random crapshoot, means nothing, it's going nowhere, suck it up. But Job's story indicates both are sort of pat answers, they're too simplistic. Or as Shakespeare's Hamlet would say, there are more things in heaven and earth than are dreamt of in your philosophy. Truth is that human existence has meaning. Love matters. God is in control, but he's not, he's not about quid pro quo. Here's my, here's my reiki summary. Life in a broken world where evil exists is physically, emotionally, socially, spiritually complicated. And at times it's impossible for us to fully comprehend what's happening around us. And yet we're called to, to, to love, to serve, to trust God in the midst of it. And that's what Job does. Even though he never, never gets an explanation for his suffering, which, which in turn means that as human beings, we have to embrace life without all the answers. And as hard as it is for some of us to accept, myself included, the reality is I don't really need all the answers. We don't need all the answers. And here's why. God says in verse 8, he says, you know, Job, is a, he's, a good, he's a good man. He fears me. And that, that word just means that he, he says he honors me. He worships me. God's point is that Job serves me because he loves me. He's committed to me. And Satan sneers. He says, no way. He doesn't serve you for nothing. He doesn't love you. He loves all the stuff you've allowed him to have, the money, the possessions, the family, the health, the status. That's what he's about. He doesn't love you for you. If those things go away, he's going to book. And, you know, and this is where the adversary exposes himself as quite an expert on human nature and puts his evil twisted finger on the very pulse of two of the biggest problems we as human beings have, greed and self-centeredness. And that was something people in Job's day struggled with. And I tell you what, nowhere are those things more prevalent than in a consumer-driven culture like ours. I mean, tell me something. Has anyone ever been really friendly to you because they want something from you? You know what I'm saying? They, they, want, they want you to do something for them. When they find out that you're not going to do it, you know, they, 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 they're gone. Ever have, that, ever have that happen? Or ever have someone who's kind of further down the line in your uh, business or organization, treat you really nice until they realize that you're not going to open doors of opportunity that they want, and so then they just ignore you, or blow you and blow you off? Just, just so you know, that's not being befriended. That's being used. It's being networked. I mean, ladies, have you ever, at some point in your life, had a guy show interest, real sweet and affirming and affectionate until he finds out you're not going to sleep with him, and then he dumps you? Why? Because he didn't love you. He only cared about himself and about what he could get from you. And for the record, that's not just how men are. It's how human beings are. It's, a, it's the, an ugly aspect of our, of our nature. And if you've ever been treated that way, if you've ever been networked, used, abused, and dropped, you tell me, how did it feel? Not very good. You know, you feel objectified. You feel dehumanized, right? And let me tell you something, you know, if you're a person who treats people that way, you don't only dehumanize them, you dehumanize yourself. Because you, you become a liar, you become a manipulator, an exploiter, a user, a negative, bitter cynic. In essence, you become more like the adversary of God than you might ever care to admit. 
Because when he sees people who say they love one another, especially when he sees people who say they love God, he says, that's not true. No, you don't. You love yourself. You love yourself more than anything else. You don't really care about anybody else. You don't care about that other person. You only care what you can get from them. You only care what you can get from God. That's what he accuses Job of. Not loving God for God, but for the things he could get from God. Was it true? Well, in some ways yes, in some ways no. I mean, by the end of chapter one, Job loses, what does he lose? He loses wealth, his status, his children, a bunch of his servants. But he doesn't curse God. He doesn't turn from God. He still reveres him. But as the book progresses, what we're going to see is, is that Job, you know, he isn't perfect. He is, he's a flawed human being, and he has some self-centeredness in him. And if the truth be told, at this point at least, he doesn't yet love God just for who God is. Not completely. Not completely. In order for that to happen, Job is allowed to suffer even more because in chapter 2, his health is allowed to be taken from him. And he still doesn't know the why of any of it. You know, sometimes in the midst of painful situations and in the kind of the confusion of it all, people will say, if God would just tell me what's happening, if he would just explain what's going on, if I only knew why, then I could handle it. You know, if he would just say, I know you're suffering, I know this is hard, but in a month from now, two months from now, a year from now, five years from now, here's the good that's going to come out of it all. Then I could deal with it. But don't we see what that kind of information would do? It would cause us to then love and trust God only because of the good things we know we're going to get from him. And so the harsh reality is that in order for us to ever arrive at a place where we love God for himself alone may require we be in a position where serving God gives us nothing or it takes everything or it causes bad things to happen. Again, life... Life is complicated. Suffering is complicated. And we have to avoid trite, cliche, simple answers and embrace life without knowing the exact why of it all. Embrace the mystery. And then, then we need to take the step that Job takes. What does he do? He worships God by acknowledging God's grace. I mean, think about it. As, as all this tragedy unfolds in his life, Job is just emotionally distraught. He rips his robe. He shaves his head. He cries out publicly. And I don't know about you, but I appreciate, the, I appreciate the emotional realism of that. There's no sugarcoating it here. This guy was experiencing tremendous grief, and understandably so. He openly expresses his emotions, his brokenness, with tears in, in the midst of his pain, which is okay. It's okay to do that. I mean, understand dealing with suffering doesn't demand cold stoicism. Job, he cries out in pain. And the text says, he did not sin. He did not sin. But what did he do? Well, in the midst of his emotional suffering, what he did was cling to a theology of grace. Because, I mean, does Job say to God, hey, all these things that have been taken away from me, they're mine. These things are mine. I worked hard to raise my kids, to earn my money, my sheep, my donkeys, my camels, my status in the community. All of this is mine. It's my stuff. How dare you take it away? How dare you allow it to be taken away? 
Is that what he says? Is that what Job says? Does he cop this attitude of arrogant entitlement? No. Instead, with great humility, he, he worships God. He says, naked I came from my mother's womb, i.e. vulnerable, helpless, and with absolutely nothing. And naked I will depart. Translation. Job says, everything I have in this world is not really mine. It's all on loan from God. I didn't bring it in. I can't take it out. God has allowed me to have and enjoy these, these wonderful things. They are a measure of his grace. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be blessed. May it be praised. I tell you, I, you know, I've read this verse many times before. I've heard it quoted many times. It may be familiar to many of you. But it wasn't until recently when I started studying Job's experience that I began to see how critical it is that in the context of suffering, how critical it is to understand the reality of God's grace in all matters, his grace in all things. Because if I build my life or if you build your life on, on, on things, career, family, friendships, money, possessions, status, fame, physical fitness. And if you believe you have those things because of your intellect, your, dis- your discipline, your talents, your ingenuity alone, then if and when you lose those things, it's really easy to feel cheated and think that God owes you. He owes me. And let me tell you something about suffering. Suffering always takes something important away from us. It always takes something, job, relationship, money, health. It always takes something. And so if we build our lives on earthly things and our attitude is one of arrogant entitlement, you know, we work to earn this stuff, it's our stuff, I deserve them, then the loss of those things is more likely to make us irate, cynical, calloused, and miserably bitter not just toward people around us, but toward God himself. Suffering will turn us away from him. But if like Job, we build our life on a relationship with God and grasp ahead of time the understanding of his grace, you know, before the bad things happen, then suffering, when it comes, and it will, it'll more likely drive us closer to God and allow us to find and experience a level of peace and might I even say joy in the midst of it. And by the way, let me, let me just point out here that when Job acknowledges God's grace, he, you know, he didn't have a lot to go on. I mean, he simply realized that all the good things he had came from God, and he should view them as, as if on loan. And if God chose, them to, chose to take them away, it was his prerogative. He gave them in the first place. And frankly, that's, that's rational, accurate theological thinking. And it's quite amazing to me that that Job understood that because he lacked the resources that we have today of understanding God's grace to its fullest. And although later in the book, Job will speak with hope of a coming redeemer and life beyond the grave, it would be quite some time before God's grace would be most fully demonstrated in and to our world through the life, the love, the sacrifice of Jesus, who himself would come and endure incredible suffering betrayal, injustice, torture, and death to graciously offer us life. And so for us today, if, if we ask the question, why is there suffering in the world? Why is there suffering in my life? We can look at Jesus and his experience, and although we still don't know exactly what the answer is, we know what the answer is not. It can't be that God doesn't love us. 
It can't be that he's indifferent to our misery. It can't be that he's detached from our desperation. The truth is, God takes our suffering so seriously, he was willing to take it on himself. And that's what makes Christianity so different from all other religions. No other religion would suggest such a thing, that God himself would suffer. And that's why if we embrace the Christian teaching that Jesus is God who suffered and died for us, then even more so than Job, we can find hope and strength to face the brutal realities of life in a broken world. The full knowledge of God's grace offers us that. Verse 1 of the, the text indicates that Job lived in the land of Uts which was a large territory located just east of the Jordan Valley. And uh, I decided to call this study Life in Uts because, well, because like Job, we all find ourselves living there sometimes. You know what I mean? You know, living in the land of pain and suffering. And to be honest about it, I'm not an expert on the topic of suffering. I'm not. But I know this much. If we don't anticipate it, if we don't, ask questions about it, if we don't wrestle with the complexity of life in a broken world, and if we don't acknowledge the head, ahead of time all that, that all that we have in life is the result of God's grace, naked we came, naked we'll depart, then when suffering comes unexpectedly and without any apparent justifiable reason, then we risk being devastated and left without any hope. And that's why we've been given the book of Job, to grant us insight. As the Apostle Paul explains it in the New Testament, he says, for everything that was written in the past was written to teach us that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might find hope. And that's my goal in this study, for us to find that very thing. Let's pray together. Our Father, this morning, I doubt there's anyone in this room who would deny the fact that life Life can be hard at times and we face unexpected trauma, um, unexpected events that, that take things we value away from us. Jobs, relationships, careers, health. And it's, it's a painful thing which is why we have to wrestle with these questions now before the suffering enters our experience. Because life is indeed very, very complicated. And so is suffering. And when we find ourselves in the midst of it, Lord, it's just really hard to think clearly. And so I pray that you would give us the courage to wrestle with these issues now and and decide what it is we believe. Is life just a meaningless accident, going nowhere, so we need to suck it up. Are you a God of quid pro quo? If we're good, you're good to us. If we mess up, we suffer. Or are you, as Scripture teaches and as Jesus demonstrated, a God of of grace who loves us and who offers us life, not just in this world, but life eternal. And that no matter the circumstances in which we find ourselves, there's more to it, there's more going on around us that we can't fully grasp. And so we need to say to you, no matter what, naked I came, naked I'll depart. The Lord has given, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be your name. 
our God. May that be the cry of our heart this morning, no matter where we are in life, no matter what we're experiencing. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I like the, the, the way that song ends is, you know, it's our choice. You know, we, we decide, you know, in good times and in bad, do we say, blessed is the name of the Lord. He is good, he's gracious all the time, and that life is complicated. You know, some around us in our culture will say, wait, look, life is meaningless. There's no God, there's no good, there's no evil. You know, your love for each other doesn't make a difference. It matters, a chemical reaction in your brain, that's all it is. Life is a biological accident going nowhere, just suck it up and endure it. And then there are others who who say, yeah, God's out there, but man, he's quid pro quo. Mess up, he's going to get you. So you better be good enough, you better be right enough, you better be, you know, have enough faith and pray enough and all these things for God to, to love you and care about you. You know, it's all about earning. It's all about your performance. Are, what, what do we believe? Because Christianity says something completely different, friends. I hope you understand it, completely different. Christianity teaches about a God of love and of grace and of justice, but has offered us forgiveness and has demonstrated his grace to us most fully in Jesus, who came and lived the life I could never live, died the death we all deserve to die, and that we might have life. And it's not about your earning, it's, not about, it's about faith in him. That's what it means to be a Christian. And I, I hope you get that. And if not, talk to someone you know from Parkview and let them talk, you know, share with, with you how God has moved and impacted their life. Uh, but if you're here this morning, you're going through some really tough stuff, uh, and we all do at one point or another, and you just want someone to talk to or pray with, some of our prayer team folks will be down here um, in the front, and they're, they're happy to spend some time with you. But... Um, uh, I hope this has been helpful. It's just the start of the series, and so we got a lot more to go. We're not actually going to do 42 chapters, <laughs> you know, verse by verse, so in case some of you are freaking out about that, just so you know. Uh, <laughs> see, we're going to be doing this for five years. No, um, we're, we're going to look at some other, some other sections of Job and his experience, you know, kind of high points of his experience, and, uh, and learn more about how he deals with this, the reality of suffering. So, hope you can come back and join us. I want to thank Matt and the guys for being with us again this morning, and and I hope you'll be back next Sunday. So let me, uh, let, let me pray for you, and then, then we'll be dismissed. And now, Lord, I pray that we would all go back out of this building into our, in our community, into our lives, our schools, our jobs, wherever life takes us this week. And whatever happens, the good, the bad, whatever happens, that we would choose to say, we trust you. Blessed be your name. We praise your name because of your grace in Jesus. And as we live our lives, even in the midst of suffering, may we live it in such a way that people look at us and say, what's, what's different? How are you experiencing that? What, what's different in your life? And we can point them to you, the God who loves them and wants to know them. Uh, and so may your hand of grace and peace and strength rest on your people today, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for being here. We'll see you next week.